All right. Good evening and welcome to the Players Lounge presented by Pro 10 Global Sports. Today is Thursday, May 8th. I'm your host, Alex Ramirez, and writing shotgun with me this evening is ATP WTA journalist Pete Zebron. Pete, good evening. Good evening, Alex. Great to be back on the show. Thank you. Yes, thanks for being here. I want to remind everybody that you can call into the show at 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10Radio and on Facebook at Pro10Radio. Pro10Radio.com has been updated. You can catch all of the future shows and all the podcasts from the previous shows on Pro10Radio.com. And uh, we have a, a great show for you today. Our guest this evening uh, was a two-time All-American at Stanford, went on to play professional tennis on the ATP Tour for 11 years, and was the first American to break the top 100 for the first time after the age of 30. He has since launched an instructional website that is actually a great website for, for tennis instruction for both players and coaches. Uh, I want to welcome Jeff Salzenstein. Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, i got to take him off mute. Yes, there we go. Jeff, welcome to the show. Yeah, I guess you didn't want me to talk tonight. Uh, Hey, welcome, Alex. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for having me tonight. Appreciate it. I'm losing my touch here on the control panel, but um, thanks for being with us. Sure. I heard the intro music, and I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm getting ready to watch uh, the French Open on ESPN in a, in a couple of weeks with the music, so I got pumped <laughs> up there. Exactly. Well, thanks for joining us, and... Um, I want to start off by getting to, to, to know you as, as uh, before you, you, you turn professional. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, when and how you started tennis as, as a young boy? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, my father was a teaching pro, and uh, he played Division One tennis at the mighty juggernaut of University of Northern Colorado. Uh, but uh, he, he was a teaching pro in uh, the Midwest, in Peoria, Illinois, and St. Louis. And my mother was a 4.0, and... Uh, similar to how maybe other kids start playing, I just probably followed, followed into the courts. And while they were playing, I was dragging a little racket around and uh, had pretty good hand-eye coordination. And my dad got me started, my parents, and and uh, just stayed with it. was playing other sports uh, for a while there. And uh, around age eight, or actually age eight, I won my first trophy in the 10 unders with yellow balls, by the way. I don't think we had the, the red orange green back then, so that's probably another conversation, but uh, yeah, I won that first trophy and got the bug, and I ended up moving out to Colorado with my mother, and uh, at nine years old, I was number one in the state in the 10s, and by 12, I was actually a national champion. I won the, the boys' 12 nationals uh, at 12 years old, and that was kind of a unique experience. The guy coming from Colorado, beating up on some of the guys from California and Florida, doesn't really happen too often these days. So, uh, you know, early on, lots of success, lots of fun playing the sport, and, uh, you know, had the bug. And, and at age 12, you know, my, my dream is actually to go to Stanford. So I just continued on that path in my junior career to, to try to attain that goal of going to Stanford. Interestingly enough, my goal was not to play at Wimbledon. It was actually to play at Stanford. At the time, they were winning national championships just about every year under the great big goal. Uh, at age 15, yeah. I, I kind of like to look at some benchmarks in my career. At age 12, I won a national championship. Uh, at age 15, I was five foot four, 102 pounds, and had dropped to 69 in the country. So, you know, many players that start off hot 
when they're young, and then they struggle in their teens, usually they fall off the cliff and you never hear from them again. But um, uh, you could say that I'm a little bit persistent. Uh, I stuck with it. I grew. I made some adjustments. I quit playing basketball and stopped skiing at age 15. And uh, by the time I was 18, I was back up to the top five in the country and, and took a half scholarship to go to Stanford. So it was a very interesting journey, uh, my junior career, growing up in Colorado, not exactly in tennis hotbed. Lots of ups and downs, right. and uh, you know, it just stayed with it and kept getting better at various times in my career, and was able to go on and move on to play it like recently at Stanford. Okay, thanks for sharing that, Jeff. And uh, you know, you mentioned uh, basketball and skiing uh, as well as tennis. Obviously, having a parent as an instructor in tennis that uh, sort of swayed you, but were there any other sports that uh, may have competed for your time in tennis? Or you mentioned at age 15 you went full tilt into tennis, but what was it about tennis that you really, uh, that, that made you all in with the sport of tennis as a result right. of, uh, compared to other sports? Right. A few, a few things happened. Uh, number one, I was, I was into uh, skiing, uh, soccer, and baseball from ages five to nine. And in fact, almost many weekends in the winter, I would jump on a bus and drive two hours and, and go skiing. So very well-rounded, not a lot of tennis. You know, I mean, a, a lot of tennis relative to the other kids that I grew up with, but not relative to the kids in Florida playing three hours a day. Uh, stopped soccer and baseball at age nine, picked up basketball, continued with the skiing. So basketball was my second love, and uh, actually played on the freshman team in high school. Um, but those sports did compete. Uh, they did keep me balanced. Uh, at the same time, it, it was very difficult to, to maintain that ranking that I had at age 12 by playing these other sports. I had to go all in uh, at some stage. And in today's, in, in 2014, we have, a, we have a different landscape in that uh, kids are specializing a lot sooner. There's homeschooling and uh, just many more hours and, and many uh, much more sophisticated coaching than we had 25 years ago. So. I think I had a lot of success because my father got me started early with great fundamentals, but, you know, my parents did divorce, and I wasn't living with my father, although he was still helping me a lot, and we, I would see him in the summers, and we'd talk on the phone, but I think he really helped me early on uh, to learn how to, to be a smart player and uh, to, be, to be mentally tough, and then my mother actually remarried uh, Miles Cortez, my stepfather, and I've got two great dads, and he actually played for the great Trinity teams back in the day when uh, Chuck McKinley and Frank Bowling were playing one and two. Uh, those are the days where you play college tennis and then you go play Wimbledon and win it. And that's what Chuck McKinley did back in the early 60s. So it's, it's a different world now. But, you know, I grew up with him and, and he played. And he had a huge influence on my game as well. So very fortunate to have two great dads. Very fortunate to grow up in a public high school system. No academies for me. Uh, I went to one week in an academy in Florida one summer when I was 14, and that was the last week that I ever did that. It just wasn't for me. I like living at home. I like being my steps to doing. I like going to public high school. And then the time I was on the court, I just made the most of it, you know, extremely focused. You know, if I had one hour a day with my, with my stepdad at 9 o'clock at night, by golly, I was going to make the most of that hour. And I think that's something that gets watered down. Uh, in today's day and age when we have a lot of programs emphasizing more time on the court, oftentimes that time is not uh, the quality time that needs to happen. So I'm a big believer in going all in for an hour 
and then get off the court uh, if you can't give 110%. Absolutely. You know, you bring up a lot of good points. As, <clears throat> as a coach, you, you, I struggle with that with some of the players that, that they want to be good and they have the, the idea. And I tell them, the idea that they want to be good is a good idea, but you're not all in. Um, you know, growing up with, um, I guess, a limit limited time that you had available for tennis, but you were so focused. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what drove you to to work so hard on your own? Obviously, people were kind of pushing you, but it sounds like you had a lot of self-drive. What what <laughs> caught fire in you that really drove you to, like you said, go play at Stanford? That was your goal from the very beginning. Sure. Well, I mean, we could we could you could put me on the couch right now, and you guys could be my psychologist and sounds like that, that question, it's a pretty deep question, and I'll, I'm going to be totally transparent with you. You know, I think my parents uh, split up uh, when I was four years old, and um, some, some kids get affected negatively, some, some kids get affected positively. And when I say that, maybe after a divorce, uh, a child might decide to get in trouble. Uh, I did the opposite. I, I, I think I decided just to be great at everything for whatever reason. I don't know why. I just know from a young age the passion burned deep to be great at everything. That included school and, and in tennis. Uh, my mother uh, did an, an incredible job raising me, uh, and I have to give her a lot of credits. We're almost at Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day earlier, early to Jan. But um, she, uh, yes. she really instilled a lot of values uh, of hard work and discipline. And my stepfather very successful businessman uh, with high integrity and high character. So I, I was very lucky to have solid parents instilling that in, into me. But with that said, it doesn't mean that I'm going to work hard just because I have character and integrity or, or my parents tried to instill that. There was just something that burned deep. I, I don't really know uh, what, what – uh, I was extremely hard on myself. I just wanted to be great at everything that I tried. I wanted to be perfect. And uh, I think when you look at a lot of great tennis players and great athletes, you know, these are the kids at six, seven, eight. They're, when they strike out or when they double fault or they lose a tennis match, they're, they're crying uh, hysterically. That was me. You know, if I struck out in a baseball diamond, I was crying. If I had a goal scored on me, I was crying. I mean, I'm not proud of it, but that, I think that's that competitiveness, that drive to be great was there. And so my parents – had to actually pull me back. They had to actually lighten the load. Nobody had to push me. Uh, it came from within. And I think that's, you know, I'm 40 years old now. I don't cry when I lose matches anymore. Um, but uh, I, I still have that same drive and that passion for, for tennis and, and for life. And so it's, it's still inside of me, you know, with everything that I, that I do. And some people say, well, maybe you can't teach it. That may, that may be true. But I think there are ways that you can foster it or create an environment that that a person you know wants wants it for themselves instead of it coming from an external source. Right. Well, 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 well put, Jeff. And uh, you know, really intriguing the fact that you mentioned you know going uh, going to Stanford, being able to play at Stanford for you was bigger than uh, you know being able to play at Wimbledon. That's that's so important. You know, I cover Cincinnati every year, and I had a chance to talk uh, a little bit with John Isner a couple of years ago asked him specifically about his time at the University of Georgia, and he, he elaborated. He said, you know, I wouldn't even be where I am today without four years at Georgia. And ironically now, the three top Americans, uh, Isner, Bradley Kwan, and Steve Johnson, all played four years of college tennis. So I uh, wanted to uh, uh, have you talk a little bit about your time at Stanford. Obviously, there was only one school on the, on the radar for you, Stanford. 
Um, and uh, wanted to know, you know, how you came about. Obviously, a fantastic tennis history there, but why Stanford in your mind? And uh, congratulations on being able to achieve that. Thank you so much. Well, at age 12, you know, we're looking at 1986, and uh, in those days, you're looking at Dan, Dan Goldie, Pat McEnroe, Jeff Tarango, uh, Jim Grab, uh, obviously John McEnroe before that, uh, just a, a pipeline, a pipeline of great tennis players. And when you're 12 years old and you uh, look up to older players uh, and you are a 4.0 student, you know, Stanford, that was the place. And, uh, you know, that is where everyone wanted to go, and that's where I wanted to go. Uh, the question when I was 16, 17, 18 is, would Stanford want me? Uh, I wanted it, but I didn't know if they wanted me. And especially, you know, at eight, I, I like to tell people, again, at age 15, I was losing first round at Kalamazoo in the 16s. I was, you know, 102 pounds, you know, soaking wet. I was sitting on a, on a, a phone book trying to, with my learner's permit, driving down the street. And, and someone looking at me at 15 would have said, no way this guy's going to Stanford. You know, he had his day in the sun at age 12. There's just no way it's going to happen. And, and that probably is a realistic view. Uh, but for whatever reason, I got back to the fundamentals. I grew a little bit, and I improved a lot. And uh, the good fortune was that my, the beginning of my senior year, before, you know, players now, it seems they, they sometimes commit, you know, before their junior, even, junior year even starts. I mean, it's really changed now, but back then, beginning of my senior year, I got a call from Dick Gould, and he said, Jeff, uh, Jonathan Stark and Jared Palmer just finished their sophomore year at Stanford. They did exceptionally well this summer on the pro tour. They decided to turn pro. I've got two spots open for next year. So without those two guys <laughs> turning pro and doing well, I was not going to be a part of that recruiting class. So uh, i got to give a shout-out to Jonathan Stark and Jared Palmer for being so good after their sophomore year to leave and give me a shot to, to play there. So that was good fortune. Uh, I ended up going there as their third recruit. Uh, there was no guarantees that I was going to be in the starting lineup. In fact, as the third recruit, I was slated to play seven or eight my freshman year. And uh, the other school that I almost attended was Notre Dame University. Or is it the University of Notre Dame? Notre Dame University, I believe. And... Uh, at that time, they were an up-and-coming school with David DeLucia and a bunch of other talented players, and uh, they got to the finals of the NCAA um, the year before I went into school. So they were really up-and-coming, and, and uh, it was a tough choice. I mean, I could have been a bigger fish in a smaller pond at Notre Dame, although they were already top ten, uh, or I could possibly not start at Stanford. But ultimately, I chose to go to Stanford. And uh, I ended up beating out the two guys that were recruited with me and played number five my freshman year. So, you know, all things, again, started working out for me uh, as I made that next jump into college. And, and that experience in college was, was amazing. You know, playing five my freshman year was a dream come true to start for Stanford. Uh, I like to say I had the worst serve in college tennis, but I found ways to win. Had a very good season my <laughs> freshman year. And, and then uh, – made a huge jump between my freshman and sophomore year. I developed a killer serve. I was serving north of 120 uh, when I wasn't serving over 100 miles an hour the year before. I made a couple tweaks in my game that summer, and I played two my sophomore year. And then uh, we had a couple guys graduate uh, after my sophomore year. and my junior and senior year, I played number one, and that's when we won our two national titles, and I was an All-American and one of the better players in college. So it was a nice... Uh, evolution, nice development for me. I had a chance to grow physically, 
emotionally and mentally at Stanford and gave me a chance to be ready for the pro tour when I graduated. Again, not something that I thought as a freshman with a 90-mile-an-hour serve playing number five and not being able to qualify for low-level satellite events. As a 19-year-old, by the time I was 22, I was, I was ready to go. Right. And, you know, uh, we're kind of on a break here, but with that said, um, at, at what point did you feel like you were getting close to, you said you weren't really focused on a pro career, but at some point you feel like, okay, my game's getting better, it's developing, I'm getting a bigger serve. At what point did you decide, you know what, I'm going to make that next step and, and try and, and, and go pro? Sure. Well, uh, my junior, my sophomore year, I made the NCAAs in the singles, uh, playing number two singles. I lost first round to Mark Merklin, had a big serve, but even then, you know, I had a big serve, and that was, well, I don't want to say that was it, but certainly not a game to make it on the tour. But my junior year, I continued to improve, and I think it was that year when I was top five in college, my junior year, playing number one. Scott Humphreys was playing number two. He had just won junior Wimbledon the year before. Paul Goldstein was playing number three, who who won Kalamazoo about 16 times uh, in his career. And, uh, you know, having those guys on my team and seeing that they were slated to play pro tennis and I was playing above them and, and just kind of having that newfound belief, that's when I started thinking about it, my junior year. And, uh, you know, most kids don't think about playing pro tennis when they're 21. Usually they've been thinking about it a lot longer than that. So uh, I just it's almost like it just kind of fell into my lap when I developed this big serve and had a pretty good forehand and got more and more athletic out there. Awesome, awesome. Well, we're coming up on a break in a few minutes. We'll be right back uh, speaking with Jeff Salzmanstein. Don't go anywhere. Hold on one second. Do you know how fast you were going, son? Call me yet. Do you know how fast you were going yet? You mean exactly? Yes, exactly. No, not exactly. How fast? Fast. Fast, sir? You were going very fast. Fast is my job, officer. Fast is your job? Yes, sir. What kind of job? I deliver, sir. What do you deliver? The world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. I thought Jimmy John's had the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. Jimmy John's does have the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. So you deliver for Jimmy John's? I deliver for Jimmy John's. So do you always deliver fast? I always deliver fast. How fast? I deliver subs so fast you freak. It's not smart to freak a cop, son. You didn't order Jimmy John's sub, sir. So if I did order a Jimmy John's sub, when would I get it? Now. What if I don't want it now? Then call later. Or I could pick it up myself. Or you can pick it up yourself. Because I'm pretty fast too. I'm sure you are, sir. Very fast. I believe you, sir. Fast than you. No way, sir. Way faster. In your dreams. You dissing me, son. No, sir. I'm polite. Fast and polite. Very polite and very, very fast. Is that a challenge, son? No, sir. It's a fact. Let's burn rubber, kid. You wouldn't be fair. Why not? You've got a fully blown V8 Camaro with slicks and headers, so I've got a 10-speed bike. I'll let you off with a warning. <laughs> they try and make it seem like they want to protect kids from smoking, but in reality, they've been targeting children for decades. They used to make and sponsor cartoons to market cigarettes. But despite these shows being popular among children, they claimed that these cartoons were for an adult audience. Then they paid movies to feature their brands. Some of your favorite superhero movies have characters that the industry actually paid to smoke on screen. One industry exec said that, We must continue to exploit new opportunities to get cigarettes on screen and into the hands of smokers. And now they carefully place posters and other ads at convenience stores and push new products that look and taste just like candy. Who eats candy and sees ads that are three feet off the ground? Come on. So you want to know why I'm tobacco-free? Because I don't want their marketing to reach my little system. That's why. Learn more at whydoyouthink.com. That's the letter Y, do you think.com. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. 
They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Hi, this is Johan Crick, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the Players Lounge presented by Pro Ten Global Sports. We're talking with Jeff Salzenstein. And uh we've covered Jeff, we've covered your, your junior career, Stanford career, and then you we left off where you decided to turn pro. Can you share with us your experience just going through the grind of trying to make it starting off playing satellites and challengers? Absolutely. Uh hopefully hopefully your listeners have uh enjoyed Somewhat, some of what I've been uh, talking about, about my story, and I'll keep going. I've got some good ones for the pro tour for you all. Uh, so let's see here. Where do I start? I turned pro in 1996. I did get my degree at Stanford in economics, so I did finish. And uh, I actually went to my first satellite in Mexico. I remember it very well because I went to Pueblo, Mexico, in my first round match at the lowest level of pro tennis, and I off to a guy at altitude with pressureless balls from Guatemala. He was ranked about 700 in the world. I lost about six, like, I think it was 6'4", six, 6'1". Six, and I remember just coming off the court thinking, oh, my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? You know, I'm in the middle of nowhere in Mexico, and I'm losing to someone pretty bad, 700 in the world. Maybe I'm not good enough. Uh, but I reset. I recalibrated. It ended up doing very well the next three weeks, finished second on that satellite had some decent results that summer, and then actually went to Portugal, played a satellite there. These are the days before Futures events, and ended up winning that uh, Future, and then took a week off and flew to Germany and played a challenger on carpet, qualified, and got to the final. So before I knew it, I had gone from 800 in the world to about 200 in the world in six months, four months thereabouts. And so, uh, you know, I, I thought, gosh, this, this pro tennis thing, maybe, maybe it isn't so tough. Uh, but for the next year, I, I struggled a bit. <clears throat> when I say struggle, I was between 150 and 200. And it was just very difficult for me to get to that next level inside the top 150. I spent most of my career there, lots of injuries, lots of ups and downs. Uh, 16 months in, I actually got a wild card to the U.S. Open, won my first round, and played Michael Chang, probably one of my most memorable matches in 1997 at the U.S. Open the first year of Arthur Ashe Stadium. It was a night match. It was Friday night before Labor Day. John McEnroe and Ted Robinson on the call. It was an entertaining four-set match. And, uh, you know, I had a good time with that. And my life seemed to be changing. My professional life seemed to be changing after that match. Uh, I signed with IMG. 
Uh, they did not sign me out of college because at that time, you know, guys that graduated from college were not thought of having a chance of making it on the tour. So things started to change, but three months later, I actually hurt my ankle, was misdiagnosed for several months, and then ended up having surgery about a year later. Coming back my first tournament uh, back, I hurt my knee. That was misdiagnosed for a couple of months. I had knee surgery. Uh, so by the time I was 25 years old, I had had two surgeries and my ranking had dropped back to 800 in the world. So, you know, pretty uh, up and down start on that pro tour uh, gig. And uh, again, speaking to my persistence at that point, I really decided that I wanted to continue. I didn't want to throw in the towel and get a real job. And uh, I just continued my climb from age 26 to age 30, where I, where I finally broke the top 100 in the world for the first time. Fascinating, uh, Jeff. It sounds obviously like the, the biggest setbacks you had uh, on the satellite uh, Challenger Tour were, were those injuries. But, you know, some of our prior guests, uh, it's, it's very fun to talk with them with respect to those days on the Challenger circuit. And you mentioned uh, your first one in, in, in rural Mexico. But what, what were some of the obscure places uh, that, you've, uh, that you were able to, uh, to play in? And uh, if you can elaborate on, on some of those, what really stands out in your mind? in your mind on sure. the calendar circuit, some of the some yeah, of those sure. places. Yeah, well, first of all, there, there are essentially three levels in pro tennis. You've got the satellites or now the features, which is the lowest level, essentially single-A baseball. Then you have the challenger circuit, which uh, in all honesty, the prize money is not great, but the, typically the, the, the sites where you play at are, are pretty good. So uh, it's not uh, – Typically, it's not too bad. And then um, then you obviously have the ATP tour. So fortunately, uh, I did very well out of the gate in those satellite events when I was 23 and just played in Mexico and Portugal. And then I was up into the challenger level playing, you know, mostly in developed countries uh, like Germany, France, uh, the U.S., for example. And then, of course, sprinkling that in with ATP qualifying events. Uh, when I dropped down to 800 in the world at age 26 and I was coming back again, uh, I played some features in Florida, but at this point I chose not to go to Africa or Central America or play in any third world country. I, I really uh, chose to play in, in more developed places. So I, I really don't have any crazy stories uh, about the places that I was in other than, you know, Mexico. There were some interesting places, but nothing Nothing too crazy um, in that respect, uh, but certainly, you know, playing at that level, playing at the challenger level, it's, it's not the ATP Tour. You're not in, you know, Mercedes cars. You're not in five-star hotels. But generally, you know, we had clean water and, and good food, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't too bad. Now, I did play in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Uh, again, it was a nice, nice tournament, but certainly – not as sophisticated as, as we all are here in the U.S. with, with transportation and food and hotels. Um, also played in India as well. And um, that was probably the extent of some of the interesting countries that I've been to. Most of the rest were, you know, in Europe and, and, and obviously played a lot in the U.S. Nice. Nice to hear. Thanks for elaborating on that. And uh, you mentioned, you know, getting that wild card in the U.S. Open, playing Michael Chang's second round. But uh, overall, throughout your career and uh, you know, whether that be at the ATP level or even the challenger level or, or even collegiately, um, who was your toughest opponent, Jeff, and, and why was that? Sure. Well, uh, as a lefty, uh, a lefty with a big serve, 
you know, I was serving consistently over 125 uh, back when I played Chang, and at that time that was probably one of the top 10, 15 serves in the world. Uh, Ten years later, 125 is average, uh, but actually I was serving in the 130s more consistently in my in my 30s, and so. Uh, you know, anytime I could play a player that didn't have great returns or a guy who had a one-handed backhand, typically I matched up pretty well. But the opponents that gave me the most trouble were those that had great two-hand backhands and great two-handed backhand returns. So if you look at guys like Vince Spadia, uh, Brian Behaley, they had great two-handers, and so my wide slice into their backhand in the ad court wasn't the advantage that most uh, most lefties have, especially if you look back in the 60s, 70s, when a lot of guys had weaker backhands and one-handed backhands. As a lefty, you could hit that wide slice, the serve down the tee in the deuce court, and you could also play the forehand into the backhand side the way that Nadal does so well. But whenever I got matched up against guys that had great two-handers, they could nullify my serving pattern and they could nullify my forehand cross court. So that that was those types of players were the guys that gave me the most trouble. Very good. It's good when you get to that point of play that you can recognize what which you need to work on and what's causing you trouble. Uh, just in your professional career, what wins or wins stand out most in your mind as special moments in that career? Sure. So, you know, I like to joke with people that, you know, I was almost famous. Uh, you know, I, I again, I, I had a cup of tea inside the top 100, but typically I was a, a 120, a 150 guy all the way down to 180 in the world. I beat a lot of guys when they were on their way up. So uh, I, I have wins over David Nalbandian. I beat him when he was 18 or 19 when he was in, in, in Costa Rica. Uh, beat him bad. I mean, he was like two and one. I don't think he even knew what hit him. Uh, I beat Fernando, Fernando Gonzalez uh, at the Washington, D.C. ATP event in the qualifying. Again, at the time, he was about 120 in the world. I beat Joe Wilford Tonga at the French Open qualifying when he was 18. If someone would have told me that day that he would go on to be top five in the world, or top ten in the world consistently, I would have said they were crazy. Uh, I beat Marty Fish when he was 18 or 19. So I got a lot of these guys uh, when they were just coming up. And uh, I often think, man, what did I do wrong uh, where I was beating up on these kids and then they developed and I didn't quite develop the way that I thought. You know, I thought that I could be a top 20 guy. People would say that I was definitely a top 50, maybe even better than that. But for me, I had some of those big wins. Another one was Fernando Verdasco when he was about 19 at the U.S. Open uh, when I qualified there for the first time at the age of 29 in 2003. But I, I think with me, there was a couple things working against me um, at the time. I wish I could have a do-over. I know a lot of us out there wish we could have do-overs with a few things. Number one, uh, my backhand was a liability. And so a lot of guys could pick on the backhand once the rally started. Um, so I didn't develop that side enough. Uh, number two, I had injuries. So I was starting and stopping a lot. Uh, and number three, and probably the deepest concept that that people might not be aware of is that I, I'm not sure I had the belief to be quite honest with you um, one of the strengths of growing up in Colorado with my family is that I had balance um, but as we alluded to earlier I never thought about playing pro tennis until I was 21 years old and so I think when I, when push came to shove and I was up a set and a break on a Peter Corda 
or on a Thomas Mooster when he was two in the world, or even some of these other guys, I, I tended to choke, for lack of a better word. I mean, I didn't quite believe that I belonged inside the top 20 in the world. So if I could have uh, reestablished my belief systems and, and believe, and subconsciously even believe that I could beat these guys, uh, I probably would have had a better career. But you know what? That was part of my journey. That was part of my learning. Um, and now as a coach, I'm obviously passionate about sharing that knowledge and, and where some of my limitations were, where some of my strengths were. So, yeah, just really tapping into that belief system and, and every time I step on the court believing I could win uh, against the better players. I still think I had a little bit of that uh, little guy from Colorado syndrome instead of, you know, playing big boy tennis with my big serve and big forehand. Um, didn't always do that at five all in the third set. Yeah, Jeff, thanks for thanks for taking us through that. And I know you played a lot of doubles on your career as well. I, I know you played a challenger with Roddick. You played with a lot of different partners. But mm-hmm. one of the re, uh, one of the uh, one of the partners uh, really jumps out at me. You had a chance to play uh, with Peter Corda at Roland Garros. I think it was the year before he won the Australian Open. How how were you able to line that up? I know he's played a lot in his career with guys like Edberg. I think he played with yeah. Goran and Vlander. How how were you able to line that up? You know, that's a great that's a great question and not many people ask me that, but uh earlier that uh let's see, it was a month earlier in April, the US Clay Courts was in Orlando, Florida at the time. And I actually that's where I played Corda and was up a set in a break and absolutely dominating him. And I took the ga- the foot off the gas, I started cramping at the end of the second set, ended up losing in three. And I think from in that match he was impressed with what I was doing on a tennis court. I don't think he had a doubles partner, and then he asked me, and we ended up playing a month later in May in, at the French Open. But, you know, that's another example of, you know, here's a guy, like you said, who played against and played with the best in the world, high tennis IQ, won the Grand Slam in Australia eight months later, uh, and I still almost I didn't feel like, like I was his equal, you know, and, and I wasn't his equal, but I think the players that elevate – a guy like Novak Djokovic who said he was going to be number one in the world when he was, you know, 100 in the world or when he was five in the world and he had Nadal and Federer ahead of him, many players would just say, hey, those guys are too good. I'll never be number one. He believed he would be number one. When I was playing with Korda, I didn't quite feel I was on equal footing with him. Uh, and and so, uh, again, that was something that held me back. But it was an awesome experience to play with him. Uh, we won two rounds at the French, and we actually played the Woodies, who were the number one team in the world, round of 16s on the bullring court on court one. And we uh, also, I actually served for the match. We had match points on, uh, I think it was on Woodbridge's serve, and then I served for the match. And uh, I got, again, I'm being very transparent tonight and, and letting everyone know that I'm human. Uh, I got tight. I didn't serve a great game there. And uh, I do remember a couple times uh, – hitting some high volleys where I think the ball was going to go out. And I remember Corda saying something to the effect of, um, if you hit one more of those balls that's going to go out, I'm going to kill you. So I think for all those people out there listening, not exactly the way that you want to talk to your partner if you want to pump them up uh, in a big match. But uh, all kidding aside, I like Peter. We get along. Uh, had a good time playing with him. And one of my most memorable experiences was, was getting to the third round of that slam with him. 
Yeah, congrats. That, that's, a, that's a great story. I thank you uh, for, for sharing that, uh, Jeff. And also, you know, you, you, played, uh, you played some dubs with Wayne Black and Kevin Olyet, uh, a couple of guys from uh, Zimbabwe who went on to partner together to win major championships together. What, uh, in playing with them, what were you able to incorporate into your doubles game uh, by, by partnering up with those guys going forward? Goodness, you're remembering who I played with, and I don't even remember that I played with. That's, that's a good effort. I'm, I don't know where you pulled those stats out, but uh, I'm, know, a, I'm, first, a, I'm a media guy. I do the research. <laughs> okay, well, uh, my my first year on the tour in 19 end of '96 and then '97, I played doubles. Uh, I played a lot of doubles, and I think I played. Uh, you could probably go back and look, but I played with about 20 different partners in that year, and I got up to 60. 68, 68 in the world about. Um, so, you know, it kind of showed that I could play some doubles. And uh, some people said that maybe I should have focused on doubles later in my career and I could have been a top 20 or top 10 guy. Uh, and, and I enjoyed playing doubles with all those guys you mentioned. Um, but as far as, you know, having – it would have been nice to, I think, have a regular partner and, and be able to do the regular drills on a daily basis. It felt like it was just – potluck potpourri who i was playing with from week to week and um so that first year was awesome to get a chance to play with a lot of different partners and learn different styles and what people like to do i mean i remember playing wayne black at stanford when he was playing he was three doubles and i was three doubles he was a sophomore i was a freshman and again you know he ended up i think he did he win grand slams he ended up being at least top five in the world in doubles uh and he was playing three doubles for usc at the time so um, you know, a guy like that had great returns, played the ad court, great backhand, great hands. Um, and Kevin Ulliott, you know, classic game, uh, very, very solid. Not a huge serve, but made up for it with, with great hands, great volleys, great returns. And so, you know, just playing on the same side of the, of the court with these guys, it just almost naturally elevates your game. And you learn, you learn angles, you learn the different types of shots they use. And, uh, for for a new kid on the block, it was fun to play with guys like that, and you know, just great memories overall. And, and one thing I'd like to add is, after my injuries, where I had the two surgeries and I came back, you know, I made a conscious effort at age 26 that I was not going to play doubles. Reason being is that uh, my dream is always to be the best singles player I could be. And when I played, uh, when I was coming back and my ranking was in the toilet, I knew that if I played doubles and had success and got to the semis or the finals, then I would miss the next week of singles qualifying. So if I was playing Saturday in, for example, Tallahassee in doubles, I couldn't get to, let's say, Atlanta, Georgia to play Saturday in the qualies there for singles. So I pretty much just started exclusively focusing on singles at age 26 and then just never really got the bug to play again because I was always just fighting to get my ranking up on the singles side. And, and I just... I didn't really have the passion to travel around the world uh, just playing doubles. It just didn't fill me up. I really wanted to see what I could do with singles, and then when I decided to hang it up uh, at age 33, it, it was time to move on instead of focusing on maybe playing more doubles. Yes, and that's uh, a lot of players that, that I work with, too. They, that's a, a fine line, whether you want to make a little bit extra money and, and take a chance at doubles to get as much play time, or because if you do well in doubles, you're right, you're stuck until the next tournament, and you may not be able to make check-in time. So uh, good strategy on your part to focus on singles and, and let doubles kind of uh, be on the side. Um, but yeah, you know, just now you know why. Well, well, we got um, a journalist 
uh, on the show with us. He does all the work for me. And uh, no makes the show look good. Um, we're coming up on a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Jeff about uh, uh, his coaching career now, the website he started, and dive into a lot more fun stuff. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Jeff Salzenstein, former top 100 ATP singles and doubles player, two-time Stanford All-American, and high-performance coach. You're about to discover how to dramatically improve your tennis fitness level so that you can play your best tennis ever. You see, this program is a 12-week guide where you'll be taken by the hand and shown exactly how to get super strong and mobile so that you can easily feel more stable, prevent injuries, move more efficiently on the court, have more endurance, and add more effortless power to your game. I want you to know that just like all of my other courses, you'll get a full 100% money-back guarantee on strength and mobility for tennis if you're not completely satisfied. I'll give you a full year to keep the program, and if you're not completely satisfied, I'm going to refund every penny. Go to jeffsaldensteintennis.com to take your tennis to the next level. Hi, this is Jeff Durango, and you're listening to the Players' Lounge on the Pro 10 Radio Network. Be sure to catch me live on Monday, May 12th at 1 p.m. Gatorade was created over 50 years ago when a University of Florida assistant football coach approached a team of physicians and asked them to determine why so many of his players lacked endurance. The researchers discovered two key factors were causing the Gator players to wilt. The electrolytes and the carbohydrates the players' bodies used for energy were lost through sweat and were not being replaced. The researchers took these findings to the lab and scientifically formulated a new, precisely balanced carbohydrate-electrolyte beverage that adequately replaced the key components lost by the Gator players through sweat and exercise. They called this concoction Gatorade. Fueling legends for over 50 years, Gatorade, is it in you? It's time to change the way you change filters, bulbs, and batteries. Meet your filter. The quality of your home's water, the cleanliness of your home's air, and the function of your smoke detectors are issues crucial to health and well-being, but they are often ignored. The solution? Let Joe Filter come to your home on a set schedule to change air and water filters, alarm batteries, and hard-to-reach light bulbs. Get them all taken care of for just a few dollars a month. Joe Filter stocks all the materials and knows when they need to be replaced. He'll also dispose of old filters, bulbs, and batteries in an environmentally safe manner. Call today for more information and let Joe Filter put your home on autopilot. The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing let's see the grip don't change it oh i saw it i saw it what makes a great coach is many things but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently right so just nice and whippy behind that ball when you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are it's it's a pretty cool feeling oh Oh, nice! Giddiness. You get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? Hi, 
This is Taylor Dent, and you are listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Welcome back to the Players' Lounge, presented by Pro 10 Global Sports on the Pro 10 Radio Network. Alongside with me today is journalist Pete Zebron, and our guest today is Jeff Salzenstein. We've gone through Jeff's early, gone through his college career and uh, a lot of his pro career. Now, Jeff, it's time to move on to after after your your tennis career um, coaching. You've launched a, a website, uh, JeffSalzensteinTennis.com, and it's an instructional website. Uh, can you tell us how it inspired you to launch this, this website? Sure. No, it's, uh, it's been a very interesting journey for me. As those are listening, you know, they heard my junior career and they heard about college and pro, and, you know, now I've got my marketing hat on. I, I've learned, uh, I'm learning some of the business side of things. Uh, I created this website in 2010. I started blogging. I had really no idea what I was doing other than the fact that I knew that I had some type of system to share with people to help them get better. I had been coaching since 2007. <clears throat> I had about three years under my belt, but I like to t- tell people that you know I feel like I've been coaching for many more years than that because as I played on the pro tour, I was studying the game relentlessly. You know, I I I was trying to figure out how to get from 150 in the world inside the top 100 and beyond, and uh, I felt like there were a lot of things I didn't learn uh, as a junior and as a college player that I should have been taught. So. In many respects, I was teaching myself as a pro to, to get better. And so uh, I felt like I'd been coaching for a while, even though I was a relatively new coach out there. I had a junior program in Denver, and it was going great. I was really helping the kids, really enjoying it. But then I started blogging and actually thought, you know what, I've got this system of teaching. I'm going to learn how to, how to market it, how to create information products to, to sell online. And so I just started the blog, and then I launched my first course in August of 2011 called the Tennis Forehand Solution. It was a huge hit. We had people all over the world buying it, and um, essentially uh, we have you know, hundreds of free videos on my blog and on YouTube. Uh, but then once people subscribe, if they're interested in my content and they want to dig deeper, I, I offer paid content. I offer paid courses. I offer a membership site. And so it's a good way for people to get a lot of free information and improve that way. And those that are really uh, big action takers, they're really committed, they're really passionate, they believe in my coaching, they end up uh, buying some of my courses. And uh, it just really evolved uh, somewhat organically from those um, humble beginnings with a, with a flip camera and, a, and, a, and learning how to blog and make videos. And, and just now we have a you know, full-on business that's working uh, it's allowed me to step off the court uh, and to focus primarily on this online venture. And that's been working out great. And like I said, we're helping people all over the world. Uh, we've got a lot of rec players that are passionate about learning how the pros play. And I really try to bridge the gap between what the pros are doing and then what recreational players and junior players can learn from the pros and, and really trying to break down what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And it's it's based on my my experience as a player my experience as a coach, a lot of trial and error, uh, but it's been a blast uh, to meet a lot of great people along the way and, and to 
have a larger audience. That's what the Internet does. It allows you to, to reach more people with, with your expertise. So it's been, a, it's been a great run. Yes, and you know, uh, I've seen a lot of instructional websites out there, and yours is the, the only website that I've actually gone to and, and gotten something out of it as a coach. Not only is I can tell players, hey, go to the website and get some other tips, but as a coach I've learned some things that I can say, hey, I can instill this into what I'm doing and see if I can have the players you know, also do what the tips that you've learned that you've, they're teaching out there. Do you get coaches that sign up as well for your site? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and one of the things down the road is, you know, maybe there's a certification out there we could do, but uh, really, uh, yes, we've got coaches that, that want to, that, are, that usually, it's, you know, the coaches that are really passionate about learning and getting better and they don't think they know it all, uh, you know, I'll be the first to admit, you know, I still have a lot to learn. I learn every day. I learn from my students. I learn from other coaches. I'm constantly evolving, and I want to attract other coaches that are open-minded and want to learn. And so, yeah, we get a lot of coaches that, that get value out of it. And what's really great is they share it with their high school teams or their juniors or their adult players, and they get results. And, you know, I'm okay with them, you know, taking credit for it. If they if they get a tip from me and they go out and they get results, we're, we're just making the game uh, better, and we're making people have more fun and more enjoyment out of the game. You know, I think that one of the challenges – in, in tennis today is is the coaching. I, I think it, at all levels, uh, junior players are suffering because uh, as coaches, uh, we are not setting the bar high enough and, and we're not teaching uh, the skills in, in the most efficient way possible. And so juniors are struggling. I think that's one big reason why we don't have a lot of Americans at the top of the game now. I really believe coaching plays a, whole, uh, a huge role, not just technical and footwork, and strategy, but also motivation. You know, are we inspiring our kids to want to work hard and play better? But even rec players, you know, they're, they're going to clubs and they're taking lessons, and a lot of them are getting uh, antiquated tips that aren't working. And, and so I think the way that I teach is a, a, a different. It's a bit refreshing. Um, some people like it. Some people love it. Some people move on to other things. That's okay. I, I, I don't claim to be uh, the coach for everybody. But um, I, I hope that what I'm doing will, will help coaches and players maybe think a little bit more, ask questions, maybe try to find a better way, a more efficient way, and uh, ultimately just move the game forward uh, both with coaches and with players. Very, very good and solid insight there, Jeff. And, and with respect to that, I, I completely agree. One of the one of the dynamics I love to cover, uh, you know, when I interview players and, and is looking at the, the player-coach dynamic, and we've had a lot of activity really, you know, on the, especially on the ATP Tour with, with players bringing former pros into their camp, and, and we're seeing some pretty good results uh, with that. Uh, that said, uh, would you ever consider coaching uh, on the ATP and or WTA Tour as we see some former players doing at this point today? You know, I really like to put on my the consulting hat more than the full-time coaching hat. I, I have a great thing going with this website. I'm reaching, you know, we've got 25,000 free subscribers now, 5 million views on YouTube, uh, several thousand buyers. I mean, that is, that's who I'm coaching, and that's who I want to help full-time. I want, I want to spread, spread the reach and, and reach millions of, of tennis players all over the world, regardless of their level, and inspire them that way through, through my videos, through my emails. Um, I definitely would entertain working with um, some top ATP or WTA pros, but I'm certainly not the 30-week 
on the road guy. You know, I'm going to be the consultant that comes in and tweaks a serve or maybe watch, watches a game style and says, hey, maybe the player should do this a little bit differently. And typically pros are going to want a coach with them all the time. Uh, and so, you know, if I, if I was more in that consulting role, role and it was, you know, five to ten weeks a year, uh, I would consider it, although even that takes me away from uh, my core passions and what I like to do. Uh, and also, right now, I'm currently uh, working with a pro player that I've known for seven years. His name is James McGee. He's 205 in the world right now, plays Davis Cup for Ireland, has dreams of being top 100. He's a good friend of mine. So I'm invested in that relationship, and I'd like to see him be successful. I also work with a 16-year-old student here in Colorado who reminds me a lot of myself. She's top 10 in the 16 and under. She's probably headed to USC or North Carolina or Virginia or Stanford in two years, I want to work with her. So I typically work with players that I have a vested interest in, that I have a relationship with, and and those are the two players I spend the bulk of my time with when I'm not working on my business. And it's very rewarding um, whether I get paid or not. I I love to spend the time with students that I've known for years that, that are passionate about the game and want to get better. Oh, that, that, that's good. And before I ask my next question, can I get the name of the uh, 16-year-old that you're working with, please? Uh, yes, her name is Rebecca Weissman, and she's from Loveland, Colorado, and I've known her since she was 10 years old. Uh, Ann Grossman started with her at age 7 and was top 30 in the world and has since moved to Ohio. I moved back to Denver uh, when she was 10, and I met her and started working with her for a few years. We took a little break for a few years, and then she came back last year, and we're working uh, more consistently. You know, she drives an hour and 10 minutes to come for a lesson with me. Uh, very, very gifted student, great kid, great family. And, uh, you know, that's that's what feeds my soul. And so getting on the road and flying to Shanghai or Beijing or, or Paris or anywhere really with kind of a, a rant, I don't, I, I, for lack of a better word, a random player, someone that I'm not that connected with, doesn't quite get my juices flowing. However, if a guy like Nadal or Federer called me and said, I want you to help me out, I certainly would entertain it because just to be able to make a difference with a, with a guy like that, as it looks like Edberg has and Lindell did with Murray, that's, that, that would be exciting, you know, to be able to do that. But, you know, to start with a player that's 500 in the world and travel with him 30 weeks a year or start from scratch, uh, that, that really wouldn't quite align with what I'm doing, with my mission to help adult junior uh, players all over the world as well as coaches. Sure. Well, th- thanks for that. And, and Jeff, first off, congratulations on the uh, massive success of your your site with respect to your subscribers and uh, Thank you. your your instructions. Yes, indeed. And you know, you mentioned obviously, and, and it's clear as day to all of us, the uh, you know sort of lack of success on the uh, uh, for the Americans. But with respect to all the hits that you're getting and your subscribers. Are there any parts of the world that maybe uh, you have more activity than most, uh, and uh, any parts of the U.S. where uh, where you're a little bit more popular maybe than than others with respect to the, your your subscriptions? Well, the U.S. is the most popular country uh, for obvious reasons. The other English-speaking ones, Great Britain, Australia, but certainly I've had requests to translate my content in Spanish and Chinese. We've got over 30 countries represented in the membership site, which is called the Total Tennis Training Inner Circle, where we give out uh, a lesson and a fitness workout every week. And uh, that's a uh, $20 a month uh, program where they constantly get updated. Uh, but we also have a program you know, for, for serve, for backhand, 
for uh, what else do we have? Serve, forehand, backhand, volleys. And we're actually launching a course as we speak called the Buggy Whip Blueprint. It's going to go live next week. So if anyone's listening to this, they can go to my website and subscribe, and then they'll start getting emails from me. But um, really, in terms of you know viewership, you know the, the sweet spot is actually a lot of recreational uh, players, particularly men. So you're, I like to I like to joke. Maybe it shouldn't be a joke, but I think it's somewhat funny. The 45 to 65 year old 4.0 player male who doesn't want to take lessons from his pro at the club because he doesn't want to see his buddy taking lessons but he's studying my videos at 11 o'clock at night after the kids go to bed. And he goes to bed dreaming that he could beat his friend. And he also goes to bed dreaming that if he could come back in the next life, he would be Roger Federer. So that's my guy. He's the, you know, the accountant, the doctor, the lawyer uh, that, that just loves tennis and wants any edge possible. And so that's, you know, that's fun for me to know that people all over the world are clicking on my videos and then going out on a tennis court the next day to try to model what I'm teaching and try to follow it. And I really think this is a great way to learn because it becomes more independent learning. You're not going for a lesson and having a pro basically tell you what to do. You're actually becoming more engaged and active. You're watching a video. You're watching instruction. You're watching a correct way to do something. Then you can go out and experiment. And if it doesn't work, you can come back and review the video time and time again so you didn't lose it after that one lesson. I also like this learning style because if you do have a coach and you want to continue working with your coach, you can certainly go to him or her and say, hey, I've seen these videos that Jeff Saldestein is putting out, and I think they're really cool. Will you take a look at it? And so we have a lot of coaches and players that are working together using my information as a supplement. So there's a lot of ways that this learning tool can be useful. And you know, thank the Internet for, for allowing me to be able to do something like this. You know, we couldn't do this 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, what's funny is I, I played and practiced with some of the best players in the world. I had no idea I was going to be blogging. I didn't know I was going to be doing this. I would have taken a lot of pictures with Federer and Roddick and Sampras and posted it all over my, my website, but I wasn't a big picture guy back in the day. So I don't have a lot of proof. You know, I would have taken a picture with Nal Bandian when he was 18, you know, with the scoreboard saying 6-1, So, anyway, uh, all in all, it's just been a great experience and looking forward to, you know, uh, growing this business and, and helping players all over the world. Yes, and, and, you know, I looked at your site. You're doing a great job with it. I have, have had students that tell me they, they have your videos and, and they like it, and the same thing, they come to me and say, hey, Jeff said this, what do you think? And we kind of expound on that. And so it's nice to see the players that uh, that want to get better. They're looking for more information, not just their club coach, but they're gathering more information and seeing the ways they want to get better. Now, one of your videos, you put out the 2014 predictions, and you stated uh-huh. that we would see big things from Grigor Dimitrov. Is he living up to your expectations so far? He did early, and I feel like he simmered a bit. And so the next couple of months, you know, French Open Wimbledon will go a long way to determine whether the guy can move into the top ten in the world. Uh, certainly after Australia, he looked like a slam dunk, but things have cooled a bit. He actually won Acapulco. So all in all, I think he's probably at about 90% of my expectations. So uh, I still think, you know, he's a second-tier guy. You know, most guys are second-tier. When I say second-tier, I'm, I'm referring to the first-tier being Nadal, Federer and Djokovic, 
Um, and, and I don't. And, and what's interesting is when these guys um, leave the tour in five to ten years, uh, the next guys that come up, I'm not sure they're going to be better than those three. And so that's when I watch his game. He's amazing, but there's something that's just not quite as good as these other guys. And I'm not sure when he's 26 he'll be as good as what we're seeing with the top three in the world. But certainly. He, he could break into the top ten. Nishikori is a guy that I did not expect to be as hot. Uh, winning that clay court tournament in Barcelona, uh, running through that draw, never would have predicted that one, uh, although he has a bright future. But he is he's probably the hottest young guy now, and, and I would not have predicted that. So, you know what, I'm I'm wrong a lot, actually. So uh, I can't get all of them <laughs> right. But I'm going to stick with Dimitrov. He's very talented. He's got a great coach that's working him hard, too, and Roger Rashid. Yeah, a couple uh, sticking on your your predictions, Jeff. Uh, you mentioned uh, three Americans really to watch this year: Smichek, Kudla, and and Williams. And uh, we mentioned I mentioned a couple of guys earlier in the show: Bradley Klein and Steve Johnson. And and you know they're uh, they're up there right now, and and they're doing very well. Are you you surprised that uh, Klein and Johnson are second and third highest ranked Americans today? Yeah, yeah, I am surprised. If someone would have told me that two years ago, I. I probably wouldn't have predicted that. Certainly I wouldn't have predicted that with Kwan. But here's the intangible that many people don't know when, you know when we're making predictions. We don't know, number one, how that player is going to adapt and what their attitude is going to be like on a day-to-day basis. And we also don't know who's going to be on their team or coaching them. And so with the case of, of Bradley Kwan, you've got a guy who has been – to this, to this point, very professional, uh, has worked very hard, and has had a guy named Stanford Boster in his corner. He's a USTA uh, player development coach who worked with Andy Roddick and, and uh, Marty Fish when they were 16, 17. This guy knows how to coach, and he is the one that, one of the ones that got him to 60, what, 67 in the world. And, you know, you just cannot, again, gets back to coaching. You remove Stanford Boster from that equation, and I truly believe that uh, Bradley Klon is probably 150 in the world right now. And wow. so that, that's really, the, I believe, the difference is coaching. You look at Steve Johnson. He had a nice little move coming out off the tour after winning everything in sight. I'm going to say off the tour. After coming out of college, he won everything in sight, got into the top 100. Then he dropped to about 150 in the last six months. He started working with Craig Boynton on a more full-time basis. Craig has traveled with Jim Courier, Jennifer Capriotti, John Isner, Marty Fish. He's also a USTA player development coach. He's gone from 150 to 65 in the world in six months. Is that an accident? No, it's not. And we need more coaches like those two guys that I'm mentioning, coaching our pros, coaching our college players, coaching our juniors to help them elevate. So, So I wouldn't have predicted it because he did, I didn't know the variables of, number one, how they would adjust to the tour, and number two, who would be coaching them. The other guys that I mentioned, uh, they look, it looks like they've plateaued a bit, maybe a bit of a sophomore slump. Um, and so, so the jury, when I say sophomore slump, uh, obviously Tim Smichek's been out there for more than a year, but uh, sophomore slump in that he broke the top 100, and then he's got to defend all these points in the second year. So he might be going through that a little bit. Uh, and then the other guys are, are newer on the tour, and they might be struggling a bit with the adjustment. So uh, probably, you know, probably incorrect on that prediction as well. So 
maybe I shouldn't be the prediction guy when uh, when 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 predicting uh, what these young guys are going to do. It's just so it's a crapshoot. It's so hard to predict really what these young players are going to do. But it's always fun to to guess and and see what will happen. I appreciate your insight on. Um on uh, someone from your alma mater, Bradley Klein, doing well, and again attributing that to coaching as well as Steve Johnson. Those are those are fine points that uh, you know maybe the average fan might not know about. So I thank you for elaborating on that. And last sure question of the night, Jeff. Yeah, last night, sticking with the coaching and, and talking about somebody that everybody in the world knows, Andy Murray. Obviously, Yvonne Lendl got him over the hump with the two majors, the Olympic gold and. Recently, both Larry Stefanke and uh, I don't know if this was uh, just to grab headlines or not, but uh, possibly John McEnroe being mentioned as potentially the next coach for Andy Murray. Your opinion here, uh, who would be the best coach for Andy Murray today, and why would that be? Okay, so let me back up a second. After he won Wimbledon, I actually went on, I have a pretty active Facebook page, and, and I actually said that, that Murray was going to struggle. I, I actually got this one right. So even though I, the last two I told you maybe I'm going to miss on, this one I got right. I predicted he was going to struggle because I feel like he worked so darn hard to win that Wimbledon, and there was so much pressure. A lot of people thought that, well, now that the pressure's off, he's going to go on a tear. But, but Murray doesn't have the style of game to go on the tear. He's more of a counterpuncher. He struggles earlier in tournaments because he doesn't have the huge second serve. He doesn't have a huge game. And so if he can get through the early rounds and get to the quarters and semis, he can give Djokovic, he can give Federer, Nadal fits. But, but he has to work harder earlier in tournaments than the other guys. He doesn't dominate as much. And I really thought that he would have a letdown, and he did. He struggled last summer. And uh, then he has the back surgery. And, you know, something's just not quite right in that corner. Then, you know, he and, he and Lendl um, – kind of wore out their, their time. And, and I don't think that is a surprise. I think if a coach and player are together for two years, it usually runs its course. Um, but now you ask the ultimate question, who's the next coach? I don't have an answer for you. Um, you know, I, I really don't. I, I would I, – I'm, honestly, I'm speechless. I think that what I, what I get a little – uh, I don't know, concerned about is that when I hear these guys looking at coaches that <clears throat> maybe have been out there, uh, I, I think he could actually do well with some, some a younger coach uh, that maybe doesn't have a name, uh, not always a name guy. And so I think the name guys can bring value, but I think there's a lot of younger coaches out there that could as well. It's just, it's sexier to hire the the yeah. um the top names you know and uh, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but uh, you know unfortunately I don't have an answer for you I think um I if McEnroe is is one of the options you know I think he would be good on a consulting basis but certainly not not full time um, he doesn't have a huge track record with players Larry Stefanski obviously uh, worked with a lot of great players including McEnroe. Rios, Kafelnikov, Roddick. So, you know, he knows what he's doing out there. But, uh, again, going back to coaching, you're asking me, and I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brain, and I, and I can't think of a lot of people. So that tells me that maybe there aren't a lot of high-quality coaches out there. And, again, how do we 
develop ourselves as coaches to be better every day. Are we doing that? Are coaches at the pro level doing that? Are coaches at the college and the junior level uh, doing that? I say there aren't enough. You know, again, one quick story, Brian Bolin, University of Virginia, dominating with that program, started from scratch 10 years ago. How many college coaches are flying to Charlottesville, Virginia every year to, to see what he's doing, to see how he's creating culture and how he's recruiting and what he's doing? I bet you could count them on one hand. There aren't enough coaches passionate about seeing what the best are doing. Uh, I would be on a plane to Charlottesville to see what he's doing at the college level. And the pro level, I'd try to sneak into Tony Nadal's box and learn Spanish while he's coaching Nadal during matches and find out exactly <laughs> what he's doing. You know, I want to be around the best. And uh, I think we need more coaches doing that so that we can raise the bar at all levels so that we can have great American players back in the top 20 and top 10 in the world. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and uh, we're closing up the show here, Justin. Uh, you give us a lot of great insight on, on the coaching side of it. Any any last-minute tips you can have for the up-and-coming juniors that are, have aspirations to play at Stanford or to turn pro or that are really looking to get to that next level, what what one tip would you give them to, to stay focused and, and get their goal? Sure. I'm going to give two. I'm going to give one, and then I'm going to give a bonus tip because I like giving bonus tips. Is that all right? All right. Okay. Absolutely. Tip number one. It's actually uh, something I learned in business, but you can apply it to anything in life. You want, to have a hu- you want to have a huge goal, a goal that's five to ten years out. In my case, it was Stanford. I didn't even know it. When I was 12 years old, I wanted to go to Stanford six years later. Number one, you've got to have this big goal that you can visualize every single day. And, and related to that, you need to have a plan, an action plan so that the next 30 days of your life, it is aligned with that goal. So are you doing everything possible in the next 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and does it align with your goal? So if your goal is to play at Wimbledon someday, but in the next 30 days you're um, on Facebook two hours a day instead of stretching or lifting weights or shadow stroking or working on your running forehand, you're probably not going to get there. It's probably not going to happen. So your short-term 30-day plan has to match up with what your big time goal is so that's tip number one tip number two you've got to find a mentor or coach to inspire you you've got to find someone that's either gifted uh tactically technically strategically on the court or you've got to find a mental coach somebody that's going to inspire you every day to get better and uh that formula will work pretty well for most people that is awesome and jeff i want to thank you so much for taking the time today to uh to be with us, hoping the listeners got a lot out of this, and, and obviously uh, with, with your website, I want people to um, go and check out JeffSalsonTeamTennis.com, great website for instruction. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Pete, for being with us again. For Pete Zebron and Jeff Salsenstein, this is Alex Ramirez saying good night, God bless, and we'll see you on the next show. Thanks, guys.
Rattle, folks. 